0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, straight Fs on the Fatara scorecard for one key measure.
1: One thing that changed from the last scorecard is that uh, they were looking at 50 percent completion in July uh, toward uh, the EIS contract for the transition. So you needed to have only transitioned 50 percent of the way. Now they've upped that. They've upped the bar on this uh, contract to 90
0: percent completion. The cyber problem your agency's renegades could cause you.
2: You know, if a package comes and in, and. In Ops hasn't seen it from the cyber side, let's say, because they do that too sometimes. You say, uh, does the enterprise guy know about this? Or what do you want me to do with it? Because this doesn't look complete.
0: And the solution to FISMA reform might not be one solution.
2: It depends on the agency's culture.
3: All of the agencies have their unique configuration requirements that are specific to the qualities that make them Their agency. It's
0: Thursday, January 19th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop Podcast presented by Lookout. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The grades are in for the newest edition of the Fatara scorecard. Those grades came out this morning at a hearing of the House Oversight Government Operations Subcommittee. Dave Nitsch reporting about the hearing on fedscoop.com. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on, as always. You saw this entire hearing. I didn't. But as I look at the scorecard, it appears to me overall to be good news. Seven agencies on the increase, 13 agencies holding steady, only four going down. Is that the way the members of the committee looked at this as they uh, reviewed it in the hearing? Welcome.
1: Yes, they were. They were very positive about agencies' progress, especially the seven agencies that approved their scores. Uh, But there is also a concern on the flip side that uh, I think about 50% of agencies now are in the AB range here. And so there's a concern that uh, scores are sort of stagnating. And what do we do to push agencies to in- continue to improve performance on IT modernization and cybersecurity? And that's going to involve a rethinking of how uh, the scorecard methodology is done.
0: I want to go into that in a little bit more detail, but the agency scores being stagnant is not necessarily bad, as I look down the list, I mean, nobody's lower than a C-minus anymore. We used to have Ds and Fs all the time. Um, The new scorecard includes all the historic grades, and there used to be tons of orange and red. There's none of that anymore. There's a little bit of yellow. Uh, The National Science Foundation, Dorothy Aronson should be very happy. They get an A-plus this time around. Never done that well before. So at least on what the legislation and the committee and the government accountability office have been measuring so far agencies have really responded i think it's fair to say
1: exactly uh, i think throughout the hearing we heard a lot of success stories from the the different people providing testimony doe was talking about uh, some cdm technologies that they're preparing to implement to improve their score on that front uh, we heard from guy Cavallo that uh, his agency is also implementing a number of initiatives and in filling vacancies and in, in in the organization adding a cto in recent months uh, that's really bolstering their performance so yes this is nothing to to scoff at this is this is great news on a lot of fronts and a lot of agencies are seeing a lot of success because of the scorecard
0: every single agency everyone has an a in data center optimization how did that happen i mean that's i that's a, i don't mean to say it like that because maybe it sounds the way that i just said it like i think somebody gamed the scorecard or something but that's that's a big deal isn't it
1: yeah absolutely uh In the six years that the scorecard has been around, uh, that's always been on the scorecard. It's been a big push by the committee. So to to see straight A's is a huge deal. Uh, Jerry Connolly did couch it, uh, saying that uh, they were looking at it with a bit of a jaundiced eye. They don't want agencies to let up. Uh, And I do think that on the next scorecard, we might see a change in how data center optimization is looked at. Uh, It might turn into a cloud adoption uh, a cloud adoption component uh, where we're now looking at, all right, uh, you're closing these data centers, but are you moving to the cloud in response? Uh, and then all, DOE was also saying, Ian Duncan was saying that uh, her agency is closing a number of data centers even though they re- achieved an A. So that they're expecting to close six more Uh, so work in progress is not going to let up, but we still might see that component evolve on the next scorecard.
0: You mentioned Congressman Connolly. One of the things that that has made Jerry's hair catch fire over the years has been the reporting structures, and I note on this Vitara scorecard, we now have 16 CIOs reporting directly to the head or the deputy of an agency, three that don't, Um, and is that satisfying him is he getting a little more calm about that idea as as progress appears to continue on that front day
1: Yes, he and a number of the other representatives, I think, uh, having watched previous hearings, that was not an issue for as many people that they were voicing that, look, we we have a leadership structure issue. Uh, If anything, I think they were more concerned about uh, people further down the food chain. Now now it's more of, all right, how do we turn an eye to workforce and improving our workforce mechanisms? All
0: right. If there's anywhere on this scorecard that broadly is a flop, it's the transition off of the Networks contract to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at GSA. There's a bunch of Fs here. There are very few agencies that are uh, ABCD range. There are only four of them that jump out at me as being A's. Uh, Treasuries and A, NASA and the National Science Foundation, and USAID, everybody else is lower and most people are still Fs. What's the holdup there, Dave?
1: Well, uh one thing that changed from the last scorecard is that uh they were looking at 50% completion in July uh toward uh the EIS contract or the transition. So you needed to have, have only transitioned 50% of the way. Now they've upped that, they've upped the bar on this uh contract to 90% completion, which is uh the, the deadline for that is fast approaching. That's March 31st of this year. So uh yes, uh we saw kind of a sweeping group of group of Fs on this this latest metric update. Uh, and uh, it is concerning. Uh, I heard from, uh, I believe it was Carol Harris with GAO uh, at, during the hearing, she was talking about how uh, the concern here is that uh, if agencies don't catch up on this on this front, the consequence is that GSA is going to have to offer some sort of bridge contract to agencies in lieu of EIS because they haven't made the transition yet. So this is definitely something on their radar. and GSA itself did not it scored an F, and they're the ones managing the entire transition. So, uh, it's definitely concerning. And I think we'll probably see uh, a lot more pressure in coming months because agencies aren't up to snuff here yet.
0: All right. You mentioned some of the people that were testifying at this hearing today. The first panel was Ann Duncan from Energy, Guy Cavallo from uh, OPM. You mentioned both of them, and Carol Harris from GAO. What struck me was the second panel. And we have uh, Dave Pounder from MITRE, who's former GAO and and probably knows the Fatara scorecard as well as anybody. He's going to be on the Daily Scoop podcast tomorrow, and we have invitations out to the other two guests, Suzette Kent, the former federal CIO, and Richard Spires, the former CIO at uh, Homeland Security and the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, I mean, that's like an all-star lineup. What was the gist of that second panel, Dave?
1: I think those uh, panelists were talking more about ways that we can improve the scorecard by by adding new components or evolving components. Uh, David Pounder wanted to see an enhanced workforce component. Susan Kent... Echoed that, but she also wants to see IT modernization looked at differently, uh, maybe looking more at how uh, agencies are improving rigid funding and procurement processes. She also wanted to see a uh, a digital component where we look at how agencies are migrating to digital and mobile platforms that improve customer experience. That could tie into the customer experience executive order that the Biden administration issued late last year. And and then Richard Spires was also suggesting adding an IT planning category. Uh, and some more technical categories that might take some more time, but uh also looking at things like TBM. Uh so they're throwing a, a bunch of things at, at the committee to look at as they they in the next couple months start to review the scorecard and update their methodology
0: just final thought it strikes me about Suzette's comments that is in keeping with what she talked about when she was federal CIO because she was always very careful at least when I talked to her to talk about IT transformation she didn't use the term modernization and she looked at it differently than I think other people did at the time am I on the right track there with what she was talking about today
1: yeah, uh, that very much echoes what she, what she had done during her tenure and is pushing for continuing to push for. Um, she she just really wants to see uh, data technologies being looked at, uh, how agencies are, are moving the ball forward on the modernization front. Obviously, that ties into some of the the projects that we're now seeing the TMF board fund. Uh, at agencies. So I do think we're gonna see movement at agencies on that front. And I think the scorecard, uh, at least the people on the panels today think that the scorecard needs to change to sort of reflect where agencies are headed in terms of IT
0: modernization. Dave Nitschapir, great coverage as always. Thanks for coming on to talk about it with me. Thanks for having me. There's more on the new Score scorecard and lots more stories at fedscoop.com. It's not too early to plan for IT Mod Week coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen around DC. Lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at the thedailyscooppodcast.com. Another place Congress is moving forward is reforming the Federal Information Security Management Act of 2014. It's looking at budget authority and reporting requirements as two places to reform FISMA. Renee Wynn is former chief information officer at NASA. She was a witness at the hearing about FISMA reform. Renee, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What was the main message you wanted to convey to the committee at that hearing?
2: Hey, Francis, it's great to see you today and and happy new year because I'm not sure we've had the chance to connect since the new year started. I had three main, actually, I had four main messages uh, with them, and one of them was not a legislative message, uh, hence the uh, hesitation there. My first one was supply chain risk management from a cybersecurity perspective that we in the government, or them in the government, sorry, uh, they uh, need to take a hard look before deploying any hardware or software. Onto the network, and they need to understand where that software was made, how it was made, who's funding these organizations, uh, what companies are really making, especially hardware, what companies are really making it. You know, you have to go down a few tiers to really understand um, who has it and, and perhaps even where they're located. So I really advocated for a stronger supply chain risk program on behalf of the United States government. My second point was uh, Internet of Things. Lots of it is coming into the government, and it's making the government more efficient, more effective. You look at medical devices, and during the pandemic, you had an opportunity to deliver services because of Internet of Things. Well, they're an opportunity, too, for a cybersecurity incident or getting into your network and the nature of interconnected things, which was my third point the IoT, the operational technology, the information technology, what it takes to actually run and deliver mission across the government, that interconnected nature of all of that, if you're not careful with how you partition it and know what you're putting on your networks, then you're going to have a lot of problems. And you could pass that problem on to another federal agency because we're all working together um, and interconnected through our networks. And so you need to have a lot more eyes wide open in terms of those three areas. And so I was honored to be asked to testify and bring those points to light. And it was a great panel uh, that was there that day. And they brought up additional points, which I think complemented mine
0: well. Yeah, the takeaway that I had more uh, broadly from the hearing rather than just your specific points, Renee, is the networks of the federal agencies are more interconnected. There's more information sharing. There's more exchange of stuff than ever before, and I came away from that hearing wondering not so much about the FISMA reform piece of it. I thought about that too, but what does the broader enterprise approach to information technology and information technology security look like at some future point? Because until now, you know better than anybody. I think agencies have been doing this on their own. You were responsible for NASA's network. You were not responsible for some other agency's network, although you interfaced with that network. And maybe you should have been, or maybe someone should have been responsible for how that's all connected together. And I wonder if maybe that's what, the writers of this legislation are getting at, for example, by making the federal CISO responsible budgetarily for some of this. But what what's a good outcome, do you think, for the individual agencies regarding that enterprise view at some future point, Renee?
2: For me, it begins with education. So having that conversation on the record, uh, acknowledging the interconnected nature first begins to shine light on you know frankly something you don't see uh, it's a cybersecurity is rather shadowy and you know they, you took your data but you didn't see a thief running out the back door with your data so just shining a light on that issue starts to get the right people talking you are supposed to have interconnected agreements between your agencies when was the last time you went over those how much has your network changed how much has your data exchanges changed in you know, since you signed that? Now, I'm sure some people are really good at bringing that up every year and looking them over and making sure it's right. But for the most part, the way things come at you in operations and in cybersecurity, you're just, okay, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And now, given the remote, talk about interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. When I was in, I had no idea how you might have kept your network. I know how I kept my network and I didn't let certain things on it. And I partitioned on what I where my computers were, you know, versus my printer. And I certainly didn't let my garage door go on to my network and create another set of problems for us as well. But now we're all connected and using everyone's home network, and that's another area to shine a light. So let's begin with education. Then you can get the right people in the room to figure out the, the architectural design of your networks. Perhaps you you know, all sorts of creative ways you can go forward. And then you can start to manage the risk better first by making
1: it visible.
0: All right. So, given that that's the structure that we're going for, given that that's the good outcome that you're proposing, what gets us to that policy wise and what gets us to that legislatively? So that we don't have in a couple of years what we had in the previous iterations of FISMA, which is not you but other CIOs telling me this is a compliance exercise, and I'm not sure I'm more secure when I'm done than I was when I started
2: so I'm going to challenge the mindset right when um, I, I was so fortunate, I had an awesome team at NASA, and our mindset was, yeah, we get compliance because we're getting graded, but we really want to protect the mission, right? The last thing anyone in the United States likes to see is a blow up on the pad. And I'm not saying that's a cyber incident, but how public NASA is, you, you really look at it and go, yeah, I get the compliance and the compliance gives you the direction you need to go. But you start talking about what are the biggest risks? And so you put your compliance-based things in and then you go farther because you then do scenarios or we uh, started working very closely with the missions to say, okay, how risky is this? And, you know, had the conversation of, is this really air-gapped? So to me, the mindset is, yeah, I'm being told I have to do this stuff but let's make the most of what I have to do and identify the risks that I'm facing and work on those risks together with your business or your mission units. And there's another piece is accountability and Congress is having hearings. I think makes sense. But one message I had, which was non-legislative is when the Congress has hearings, program, budget, authorization, They need to be asking cybersecurity questions. What are your big enterprise risks? How does cyber play into it? And what are you doing about it? Don't make it just the job of the CIO or the chief information security officer. Make it the job of everybody by asking them specifically under oath.
0: I take your points about compliance and uh, mission security and delivery, and, Mm -hmm. and I appreciate them. But it strikes me that that still belies a mindset of we have compliance here, and then over on the other side of the desk, we have the mission security and delivery. And what I'm getting at is how do we combine them so that one doesn't think I, I'm doing this and that. It's all one thing that the, the result of the, the certification or whatever it is that you deliver that says we complied with the, the letter of this legislation also means we complied with the spirit of the legislation. Because that's where it seems to me the divergence has been over time.
2: All right, so I think that's a great point because that's how it gets played out sometimes, right? So even if the mindset was, you know, okay, we've got to do this securely, we've got to really think about protecting the mission or the data of our veterans or, you know, insert dangerous thing in this, one of the things that we did at NASA, there is the operations team and the cyber team met regularly. And in fact, our project, And program reviews was an all-play. Everyone sat around the table so that you wouldn't hear at the last minute, well, I only got the package a week ago, let's say cybersecurity. The ops people and the cyber people need to work together. and That is true on the mission side. Now, on the mission side, you may have your contractors or they may have their contractors sitting in with the cyber expertise with the mission people but you put them at the table you don't make it another stop in the process you make the process delivery on the mission delivering on the project with security as part of that delivery so secure delivery there's a lot of different techniques especially in software development but the long and short of it is those project teams need to be one and the same and they need to work together and as a if you're any executive or you know a branch chief you need to demand that Right, you know, if a package comes and, and ops hasn't seen it from the cyber side, let's say, because they do that, too, sometimes you say, uh, does the enterprise guy know about this or what do you want me to do with it? Because this doesn't look complete and, you know, ship it back or have those conversations.
0: All right. Renee Wynn, always more stuff than there is time to cover it all. Thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to see you.
2: Yeah, great to see you, too, Francis, and be well.
0: You can find a link to the FISMA hearing in today's show notes at TheDailyScoopPodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of The Daily Scoop Podcast. February 8th is the Delivering Better Outcomes Through Automation event FedScoop's putting on. It's at the Ritz-Carlton West End in D.C. from 830 to 3. You can read more about it and sign up through the link in today's show notes at TheDailyScoopPodcast.com. As you heard a moment ago, FISMA reform in Congress could change several things about how agencies do the business of cybersecurity and how they show their work. Jennifer Franks is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office. She testified at the FISMA reform hearing, too. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What was the overarching message you wanted to convey to the committee at this hearing? Welcome.
3: Thank you for having me. Um, Good question. And the overarching uh, message I wanted to deliver was that we reviewed and interviewed CIOs and CISOs at each of the 24 CFO agencies. And each of them believe FISMA has really indeed improved their information security programs to a great or even a moderate extent. But in light of some of those benefits of FSMA, my overarching me- message was about the impediments um, to the implementation of FISMA, and then some suggested improvements to the reporting process that will aid all of these agencies to increase their effectiveness and efficiency of their cybersecurity programs.
0: There are some uh interesting tidbits that i took out of your testimony jennifer one of them that i thought might be a little concerning and please tell me if i'm wrong you said for fiscal year 2020 reporting IGs determined that seven of the cfo act agencies had effective agency-wide information security programs my math is not really good but that means the (laughs) overwhelming majority of them don't am i reading that right
3: You read it correctly. Um, The overarching majority do not. Um, And I did highlight in my testimony that there was just some concern in the agencies' identify, protect, detect, and recover capabilities. And that was to a varying um, degree across the different agencies. So the rating levels have a lot to do with. Um, the maturity of the security programs we know at the at the basic level most of the agencies at the ad hoc had formalized procedures and policies for their governing programs, or even define some of those necessary measures. Um, where agencies lack was moving towards from the ad hoc and the define to really managing and having a measurable security program where they had the necessary quantitative and qualitative measures on program effectiveness. So a lot of them consistently implemented procedures and policies, but they were lacking in that effectiveness measures where IGs would have taken their scores from the ineffective rating to the effective rating. And we are going to have a full report issued in the coming um, weeks. And what we're going to be looking at is ways for OMB to increase that um, effectiveness to maybe a gradient scale to give some of those agencies a little bit more encouragement to uh, to not just have a cold effective versus ineffective, maybe we could be looking at a moderate effectiveness or or fully effective once they get there. But really looking at that gradient scale to just give them that additional push that they're moving in the in the right direction, and it's not why such a cold, heart cut at effective versus
0: ineffective. Um, uh, the pass-fail idea has confounded, uh, I know, CISOs and CIOs at agencies for years. And another thing that has confounded them for years is sometimes the ability to uh, take the uh, recommendations that GAO makes and act on them. And you mm-hmm. testified about that. 3,700 recommendations to agencies aimed at remedying cybersecurity shortcomings since 2010, 900 not yet fully implemented as of November 2021. And I wonder, is there a gradient there that's possible? Well, this many of the 900 are in progress, this many of the 900 nobody's touched. Is there a way to quantify that and get some sense of what the trajectory overall looks like, Jennifer?
3: Yes, that that's a good question. And there is a way to quantify it. I don't have... You know that data actually committed to memory, of course. But that's why I emphasize not fully implemented. Um, we work with agencies all the time. For example, um, the IRS, which is cited in that report, um, we do an annual review with the Internal Revenue Service, and we have ongoing recommendations that upon our new year review, right after a. Uh, tax season has ended. We go back in and we're reviewing the extent to their compliance of those systems that touch our taxpayer data. And they have ongoing reviews from previous years that we're reviewing um, for their um, information security program compliance. We're looking at the network integrity, their access controls, their ability to encrypt data at rest and in transit. So all of those ongoing Um, recommendations, They, they kind of roll over. And we're saying fully implemented or not fully implemented, rather, because in all instances, they are taking aggressive actions annually to start what they need to do to close them. But sometimes there is a lack of resources or necessary configurations that will fully um, allow them to close something. So, so it is an ongoing way to review that. And I'm, I'm available at any time to really provide um, Congress with that data to show them what's fully implemented, partially addressed, and even just fully open, not addressed at all
0: at the beginning of this conversation jennifer you talked about the interviews that you conducted to get the information that you testified about and you said in this testimony that you interviewed these officials uh at uh, 24 cfo act agencies uh 14 of them stated that fisma enabled their agencies to improve information security program effectiveness to a great extent the other 10 said moderate extent is that what's the holdup from getting everybody to great extent? What is, what is the, what are the roadblocks that you uncovered, if any, or themes to the roadblocks that you uncovered, if any, that are holding these agencies back from saying, this is really helping us do what we need to do.
3: Be honest. It, it depends on the agency's culture. All of the agencies have their unique configuration requirements that are specific to the qualities that make them their agency. What is going on at NASA and their decentralized uh, uh, configurations and the needed support for their government systems that spread across the United States could be very different for for the Department of Education or the National Science Foundation that has a lot smaller organizational configuration standards. So what's happening there is a smaller agency may have a quicker ability, a better ability to really meet some of the policies and procedures and the compliance that are outlined in the FSMA, Where some of the larger agencies that are really decentralized have just the harder way of really pulling together those necessary Resources to really look at what what it is going to take them to meet those compliance metrics year after year, while also satisfactorily looking at their cybersecurity protections that really would make stronger programs for the governance that they really need to apply to their everyday um, business needs.
0: Jennifer, what is the next step for agencies to take to do what you just suggested?
3: To be honest, a lot of what is going um, on with agencies strategizing how to respond to the executive order that came out May of of 2021. So there are a lot of directives that are uh, allowing agencies to take the configurations, take the resources they already have, look at their network and re-strategize, you know, how they are going to be able to detect and respond to cybersecurity incidents, how they're going to be able to uh, further provide stronger authentication services to their users to access their uh, systems remote or within the insides of their agency's boundaries. So really uh, just looking at what they already have in implementing stronger protections is, is where agencies have to start. The foundation of FISMA is always there. It's really already outlined all, all of the elements that were already identified in that uh, executive order FSMA provides that foundation. So when agencies are taking these new requirements that are outlined by either the EO or the binding operational directives or the OMB memos that come out to really strategize and streamline what agencies should be doing, they're foundationally meeting the requirements that are set forth by FSMA. So they really just need to just (laughs) take more time and and really strategize what's needed for their specific agencies. environments.
0: Jennifer Franks of the Government Accountability Office. Great to talk to you. Thanks for your time today.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: You can find a link to Jennifer's work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. Now, if you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The government of Ukraine is suffering from malware intrusions, that revelations, heightening concerns about what could happen to U.S. federal government systems. Christina Balaam is Senior Threat Researcher for Threat Intelligence at Lookout, Lookout sponsoring the Daily Scoop podcast today. Christina, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What should agencies inside the federal government be doing today as far as teaching their workforces what they know and what they don't know about the threat to malware inside their systems. Welcome.
4: Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, th- that is a great question. Um, I think we're kind of getting into this this era of, of more everyday people understanding that there are pretty significant cybersecurity threats out there. Um, and I think for the vast majority of people, regardless of where they're working, even if they're working for some kind of uh, federal entity, don't necessarily see themselves as really high-profile targets. You know, we see uh, discussions like what you've mentioned, malware in Ukraine. We've seen discussions around uh, the Pegasus uh, targeted surveillance where, you know, typically focused on kind of more high-value targets, for lack of a better expression. Um, and, And I think what organizations can do to help bolster cybersecurity within their organization is educating their employees that even if you don't necessarily believe you could be targeted, um, you might be surprised to learn that that you could be used as a pawn in a much larger scheme. So, you know, I, I think it's sort of providing those um, important fundamentals to their employees about what to do while you're connected to corporate infrastructure and understanding that, especially in this kind of new era of working from home while we're in the midst of this pandemic, um, that your personal devices are very susceptible to attack by... Numerous different entities and threat actors, and when you're accessing corporate infrastructure or corporate assets, uh, even things that you think might not be particularly um, sensitive, those could still be used as part of a of a larger campaign by the threat actors. And so it's you know it's little things like telling employees not to leave their computers connected to a VPN, um, you know, not letting Various family members use their computers if they're working from home. Again, connected to a VPN. A little kind of like um, sanitizations of our of our internet use habits and computer use habits that can. That can dramatically impact how secured an organization is uh, from their employees.
0: What have you seen, though, that really works, Christina? Because Mm -hmm. I've heard just horrifying stories from the exercises that CIOs, CTOs, CISOs perform across federal agencies where they'll essentially make up phishing campaigns, send them out to their employees to see who bites. And I I get what you're saying that some folks don't think of themselves as high profile targets, but some of these exercises are catching some pretty high-profile targets, and so it strikes me that this is a problem at all levels of organizations, and I wonder what you've seen really work to change behavior and really move the needle on this.
4: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, this is going to sound very cynical, but I, I think one of the easiest ways for organizations to really protect themselves is to assume that your employees are going to make mistakes. Um, and and it it sounds it sounds cynical because you you know you want to believe that that people are going to try their best. And I honestly believe that everybody does. But some of these attacks are so targeted, just like you're saying, some of them can be very, very sophisticated, especially in cases where you're sort of um, testing your own security uh, establishments and sort of like sending out the pen tests or the uh, the phishing attacks against against your own employees. Um, you have to kind of understand people are going to make mistakes. And so it's all about mitigation and um, access control. So making sure that, you know, even the very high profile um, employees of your organization you know, are, are there ways that you can kind of limit what each individual has access to, where they can only access the assets that are absolutely necessary for them to do their job, especially if they're connecting to some kind of infrastructure or their assets from home? It's things like, you know, somebody who's not necessarily working with the data firsthand, not having access to a production level database. Little things like that, just sort of uh, sectioning off the the accessibilities for people within your organization can really kind of protect the organization as a whole. Um, and, and then it's, you know, it can go even further into, into managing certain devices. So for example, if, if you have a case where employees are using their own personal devices to access corporate infrastructure, corporate assets, it's doing things like, um, you know, having some kind of management policy where your employees understand that they're not uh, jailbreaking their phones, they their um, you're you're sort of checking to make sure that they're not installing any kind of malicious uh, applications, Uh, little things like antivirus tools that can really help kind of, again, sanitize the devices that are connecting to the important infrastructure that you're working with.
0: Assuming employees will make mistakes also, I think, although I don't think it's as cynical maybe as you think it sounds, Christina, but (laughs) it it strikes me that that puts an organization in the right worldview too, in the right kind of conceptual framework of thinking we're going to get hit. We're going to have a problem. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be ready for when that happens and not Hope that it doesn't, and then deal with it if it happens. Right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think that's one of the things that the pandemic has kind of shone a light on is that it, it's not just your Fortune 500 companies that are going to be targeted. Sometimes even smaller organizations or smaller entities that may not seem like high value targets um, are still valuable to attackers because they're kind of low hanging fruit. Um, you know, you you might. Not target a big Fortune 500 company because you assume that they have a, a pretty substantial security engineering team and they've got practices and policies in place. So if if you're you know a less sophisticated attacker, going to a smaller organization where you you kind of suspect they may not have the same protocols can be very rewarding. Um, and, and I think that's what a lot of people are starting to recognize in, in light of what's been happening as, you know, things have kind of shifted over the course of these last interesting two years.
0: That certainly is what the Defense Department has experienced. Uh, attacks continue against the department, attacks continue against the big prime contractors. But the threat has seeped down into the defense industrial base and the smaller companies are getting hit as well. Uh, that's prompting the CMMC uh, regulations inside the Pentagon. What should companies, though, be telling their rank and file employees? What's the messaging that should be getting out to the individual employees right now, Christina?
4: I think a, a big message here is, is that it kind of plays into what we've been talking about this whole time, but recognizing that everything that you're using um, when it's connected to the internet could be susceptible to attack. And, and again, that's it's a very scary notion to kind of you know unleash on everybody, but it is, it is true. Um, and you know and it, it just like you said it kind of goes to all different areas of an organization even the you know kind of like the lower echelons of an organization that may not seem um, particularly high value helping your employees realize that if they're connecting to any kind of asset that your your company considers important then they could be a target um, you know, at the federal level, we've we've seen targeted attacks, uh, surveillance wear against military personnel um, through dating apps. You know, it, just individual soldiers. Um, you know, targeting by nation-state actors because that was an easy mechanism for for learning about what kinds of, kinds of operations were happening um, by that particular uh, military organization, um, and, and it really just started with a, a very unsophisticated. Uh, surveillance sample masquerading as um, kind of like a a Tinder style application. And so those situations, those are a lot more common than you might think. Um, A lot of these attacks aren't necessarily super sophisticated, even when they're coming from nation state actors, you'd be surprised the kind of things that we see that are, uh, you would expect them not to work, but you know, If people are a little bit more trusting with their personal devices and not necessarily thinking about how they play into the, the grander scheme, uh, these very unsophisticated attacks can actually go pretty far.
0: Yeah, it's the old saying that they must be working because people keep doing them and they wouldn't waste their Absolutely. time doing them if they didn't work anymore. You yeah. alluded a moment ago to the remote work environment that we're all in um, is experiencing right now. What is the implication of that, do you think, for the long term as far as the way that organizations should think about these issues, Christina? That's
4: a great question. I think we're kind of at a point where we're realizing that this new environment is probably going to stay with us for quite a while, uh, regardless of what happens in the future with the pandemic and new variants and, and all of that. Um, I think a lot of employees have gotten quite used to this new lifestyle and you know some people do want to go back to the office but most are saying they prefer a hybrid environment. So a lot of organizations that maybe didn't expect to have to kind of manage this remote work environment past a, a certain deadline are probably going to have to stretch that deadline and come up with more permanent solutions to the security that they have in place when they have so many employees accessing all of their infrastructure and their assets.
0: Christina, a lot to chew on. Great insight. Thank you very much for joining me today.
4: It was a pleasure. It's so nice to meet you and and thank you for having me.
0: The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. A brand new Daily Scoop podcast is yours tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.